You're listening to The Policy Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. The COVID-19 crisis, which is upon us, is changing so much about the world as we know it. It's changing the world of business. It's changing our social lives. And it's changing the role of think tanks, or at least changing the way we operate. My guest today is a former colleague at the Australian newspaper. He's a presenter with ABC Radio National, and he's the head of the Centre for Independent Studies. I'm delighted to welcome Tom Switzer. Nick, it's great to be with you as always. Thank you so much. Just give me, give me an idea how things are going at your end. Presumably, like us, you must have had to change the way you operate as a think tank quite considerably. Well, we had some form because in early February, there were some severe storms in downtown Sydney and that created a leak um, in one of our floors of our building and that subsequently led to a significant leakage and flooding in our office. So we, we haven't been working in our office on 131 Macquarie Street since early February. So we're getting used to this uh, virtual uh, conferencing and um, working from home. It's not ideal, but... Um, Look, uh, it, it's uh, being thinkers. It's uh, it's easier to adapt to the coronavirus crisis than other workplaces. So we should take solace in that. Yeah, and I've been keeping a close eye on what you're doing. And you're like us, you're 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 looking to the great opportunities that there are in digital media these days. Platforms <laughs> like this, video casts, those sort of things. Uh, they seem to be. I think their time has come. Is that what your sense is? Yeah, I think there's still something to the adage, it's never the same unless you're there at the game. And that was a famous quote that was used in an advertising campaign for the New South Wales Rugby League in the early to mid-1980s. I think there's still a lot of truth to that. Being at an event, uh, seeing the talent on the stage, taking questions, getting a laugh from the audience, there's still something about being at an event and having a beer and mingling with people. Nothing beats that. And CIS, we do events every two to three weeks. And we get a pretty decent crowd. So it's not quite the same. But I think certainly um, uh, one of the upsides to all this, especially if you're one of those climate enthusiasts, is that uh, there's no need to have all these international gab fests because um, all these uh, climate change conferences can now be done on Zoom. They don't need to be flying around <laughs> the world <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, taking along. So I think there's an upside to that. And, and we're very grateful for technology. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's also a reminder that, that technological progress comes across through um, through uh, individual uh, incentives and entrepreneurial spirit. And that's everything that groups like Menzies and CIS stand for. Yeah, innovation. I mean, we, we've mm. talked a lot about innovation without knowing what it really meant. But I, I get the sense that, that this is the year. This is the year in which if you are a business or a think tank, for that matter, that, that, that innovates, that thinks fresh about things, you're going to thrive in, in coming out of this crisis but if you're stuck in the old ways you may struggle i think there's a lot of truth to that nick and um you just have to think about how workplaces will adapt in the new era um and um i think you know cis we we, we actually champion workplace flexibility uh so um you know in light of that it makes plenty of sense to to uh, to actually practice what you preach and i think a lot of companies will find that when this crisis passes um, people will move on. I mean, I've often been thinking, my friend Simon Heffer uh, says that, um, uh, Simon Heffer, of course, is the British uh, historian and columnist who was a guest at CIS last year. He wrote a piece recently in the Daily Telegraph where he talks about how in 
forcing working from home is uh, obviously you know confirming the utility of the internet and and, 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 and the innovation of the digital revolution and all of that, but it will ultimately uh, alter the work-life balance quite radically. And some people may never return to their offices or at least just visit them occasionally. Now that could have a bad effect on the commercial property market, but it could also free up space for much needed residential development in the city. So there's always pros to these cons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we're going to see the CBDs change quite considerably, aren't we? I mean, you've got, First of all, you've got all this commercial office space, some of which won't be used because people will be working from home. Then you've got, you know, decline in tourism. You've got the probable decline in higher education, at least in terms of overseas students. And we know how many of those help prop up the economy. And plus retail, of course, you know. So uh, are we going to be Detroit, Detroit, do you think, with a great hole in the middle? Or are we going to find something to to do with that look, space. look you're quite i mean the, the businesses will go under there's no question and you don't want to ever underestimate the hardship and the stress that um that will all cause and this will be by all accounts worse than the global financial crisis and the recessions of the early 80s and the early 70s and the stagflation of the 70s you have to go back to the 1930s to experience anything comparable but um the difficulties uh this, this virus causes are only temporary and at the end of it, and again, this is a point that Simon Heffer makes, there'll be new business opportunities for entrepreneurs. There'll be new openings for those who work for them. And, and um, uh, that's, it's, you know, Joseph Schumpeter, the great Austrian economist in the 1930s, put it best. He called capitalism creative destructionism. Yeah, indeed. Not, not, um, not too much destruction, we hope, but uh, you're, well, you're there dead will right. Be just, there will be destruction from this crisis, but there'll be some creativity as a result. And... Uh, uh, the genius of uh, human beings is that we adapt and we innovate and, we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll get over this, but there'll be a lot of teething process. Um, there'll be a significant teething process in the short term. Yeah, and because there's this question of moral hazard, isn't there, right now we're uh, watching. I mean, people will be listening to this one, this podcast in a few weeks' time, so we should say we, we're in, at the point where the government is being asked to bail out um, Virgin Airlines. And... Mm. Uh, it's a difficult decision, isn't it? I mean, you know, as you say, I mean, it can be a mistake sometimes to prop up an industry. And yet there are some industries like the airlines, which are of national importance. And so what do you do? What's your, what would your advice to them be, Tom? Uh, well, I think uh, that many of these decisions to print money and to bail out companies do set a terrible precedent, but they are extraordinary circumstances. I mean, our ideological opponents, Nick, uh, Black Ink Books, The Guardian, um, the unions, get up all that crowd. Uh, they are using this crisis as a way of saying that it's, a, it's ultimately an indictment of um, free market capitalism, or as they call it, neoliberalism, uh, which is just a nonsense. Um, Today's crisis is a liquidity problem uh, that's being caused by this extraordinary government economic shutdown to stem the spread of the virus. It's got nothing to do with free markets or dodgy CEOs, and nor is it the result of years of a shrinking state, as our critics allege. It's, if anything, government spending on health and education as a percentage of GDP has increased since Kevin Rudd came to power. So this is not a crisis of capitalism, and governments are under all sorts of pressure to do everything they can to bail out individuals and governments but there's only so much they can do and especially when you consider that it's it's leading to runaway deficits and debt yeah i think to look at the positives one of the 
one of the things I find really, really encouraging at the moment is to see so many people, uh, you're in this camp at the CIS, John Roskam at the IPA, some others around the traps, and certainly, you know, senior government figures who you talk to, who see this as a, a, an opportunity. They say, well, look, there's so much vital mm. economic reform that we've just left undone for the last 28 years, perhaps not that long, but during that period of boom. And now the time has come when we might actually uh, be forced to do that and actually bring about some great changes. And I see that already in, in the, the way the government's approached this crisis. Mm. For instance, industrial relations is something mm -hmm. they're prepared to take on. What, what's a think tank's role at this, at this time? We should talk about that because we're both in this game. What, what, what should we be doing at the moment to support that reform agenda? Well, groups like CIS and IPA and Menzies have been on, have been intellectually pushing economic reform type agendas for several decades. In fact, uh, Menzies wasn't around, but in the 70s and 80s, IPA and CIS played an instrumental role in setting the intellectual groundwork for the free market reform agenda that Hawke and Keating backed with the, the coalition and opposition. Uh, we strongly played a role in that. And I think we can do the same thing with this crisis. Um, and Rahm Emanuel, who was Barack Obama's uh, chief of staff um, in the 09-10 uh, period, uh, shortly after Obama won that election against uh, John McCain, he famously said that you never want to waste a crisis. I think Winston Churchill is credited with saying it originally, but Rahm Emanuel put in the context of the global financial crisis. And what he meant by that was... All the policies that liberals, that is American liberals, wanted to put in place before the crisis, they couldn't get it through. But they could use the crisis to then make the case for things like uh, an emissions trading scheme or um, more financial regulations and things like that. These are, of course, policies that we generally don't agree with. But um, um, I think for us, in, in today's context, this is a crisis that we could use to our advantage. And I'm just thinking of just basic policies that will help boost uh, business and public confidence, um, a wide range in structural agenda to, um, you know, get the economy going. And you do that not via higher levels of government, but via a growth agenda that's, that's provided by the private sector, being free to invest. And you do that by taxing and regulating them less. And the kind of policies that we've been supporting, things like lower taxes, uh, slashing excessive regulatory red tape, um, IR reform, you mentioned industrial relations, uh, loosened infrastructure bottlenecks, education's always been a big issue for us. So they're the kind of areas where we'd want to push. Um, and, uh, but of course, to be successful, you ultimately need bipartisan support in Canberra, and that's where this process will become very tricky. Think tanks can only do so much. The politicians have to reach their consensus, but we can certainly play a role in championing those intellectual ideas. Yeah, and, and here's the worry for me, because I... I you know, I, I'm always expecting Labor to kind of wake up to itself and realise that its core business is, is jobs and um, keeping the economy going for the benefit of individuals who work there. But um, they never seem to. They seem to be, have been up to now, at least for the last few years, stuck in a, a sort of progressive left arena where they're, 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 you know, their, their language is about climate change and, and these other great issues but not directly about jobs i suppose the question is will this 
will this uh, recession, which I guess we must call it now, there will be a recession, will this recession change the party round or is it too late? Well, history, modern Australian history is littered with two good examples of where our political leaders used crises to implement sound policy. So the obvious example, of course, was the balance of payments and currency crisis of the, 19, of the mid-1980s. And that prompted Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, and his treasurer, Paul Keating, uh, to kickstart a reform agenda, floating the Aussie dollar, deregulating financial markets, workplace relations reform, tax reform, privatisation, competition policy, uh, in, in, import protectionism, uh, cuts, cuts to tariffs. And that helped internationalise the Australian economy, make it more competitive. And that made us um, less vulnerable to external shocks. And that explains why, well, helps explain why we've had nearly 30 years of uninterrupted growth. So that was one example. The other example, of course, was when John Howard and Peter Costello came to power in 1996. It was only a few years after the recession we had to have. That was the last recession this country had experienced. And they used that as a licence to put in policies, budget repair, um, and um, budget surplus and um, tax reform, the GST and whatnot. So um, I think there's a precedent here for Morrison and Frydenberg to use this crisis as a licence to put in place sound economic reforms that improve incentives to work and invest. And if they don't do it, uh, mark my words, our ideological opponents will be clamouring for higher levels of government, which ultimately means uh, a higher burden on taxpayers that will only retard the economic recovery. So, so I, I mean, a lot of this comes down to the political leadership in Canberra, but think tanks like CIS and Menzies and the IPA can play a very important role in moving policy in the right direction. Yeah, because we've been here before, haven't we? Well, yeah. I, mean, I wasn't here at the time, but I, after World War II, for instance, after you'd had that period where necessarily in wartime, the government has to take control of much more aspects of the economy and everyday life than they normally would. Uh, Labor in Australia came out of that saying, well, we want more of this. We've shown how well the government can run the place. Let's keep the government running the place. Let's keep borrowing money. Um, and of course, it was Robert Menzies who, who I think almost uniquely in the, in the Western world for a centre-right leader, took a, a very strong philosophical uh, um, line against that, saying that, no, no, we're not going to go to a a world in which the government runs and bathes and buries you and all the rest. We, we need an economy in which individuals are empowered to make choices, to, to seize opportunities, to to become prosperous. And and that, so I, I sense we're going to have a similar debate now with Labor saying, well, look, you know, all this money, let's keep pouring in more. I think that's right. And the World War II, um, that the period after World War II is a very good example because um, in many countries uh, like Australia that participated in that war, and we ended up being on the winning side of that, the, the, the status, the over-regulated, the high taxation regimes deemed essential during the war, they actually lasted, and in some cases for decades. I mean, you remember this, Nick, in Britain, it was Thatcher's election in 1979. Um, that was occasioned by, in part, a, a, a public demand to end the high tax, high spending interventionist form of government that pretty much had existed since 1945 under both Tory and Labor governments. And in Australia, after World War II, 
uh, rationing, and most notably petrol, but other things as well. Rationing persisted for several years um, until uh, Robert Menzies ended up um, um, jettisoning it uh, after his 49 election. So I think um, there is a danger that these emergency measures that have been put in place, our critics will want to see them preserved, uh, but we want to ensure that they're lifted at the appropriate time. And the otherwise, same otherwise, I'll become deeply embedded in, in the public psyche and it'll be very difficult then after a generation to turn them back. And the same thing seems to happen with government spending, doesn't it? Whenever they increase spending yeah. as a portion of GDP, oh, yeah. you know, wartime, it never, ever seems to go backwards. So um, oh, that's yeah. a difficult one. I don't know. The fiscal policy is another issue altogether. But where, how, do we, how do we stop this relentless rise of the state? I don't know. Got any thoughts? Well, I think um, there will be a case um, that the public sectors become increasingly uh, bloated. And um, although the public mood is likely to get blacker as the economy turns down, I think that ultimately there'll have to be major cuts to public expenditure. Um, I mean, for years, we've, as you say, we've, we've become used to government spending rising annually. That'll stop. All governments, whether they're of the left or the right, they'll have no choice but to hack back viciously at the public sector. I can see that being an issue. Um, or, or perhaps I'm naive. I, I just think that that, that that kind of agenda will need to be put in place if we're to rein in uh, the runaway spending that, has, that will contribute to higher levels, of huge levels of debt. That, that will be a huge burden for future generations. Yeah, I think the, the challenge here is, is state governments. I mean, they're the ones who spend the money, right? Mostly it's, it's the federal government that raises much of it. And this has been the weak point, it seems to me, up to now with this idea of, of pulling back government spending, that so much of it is in the hands of the states. Um, and they've just been so reluctant uh, to pull back, you know, public sector payroll, for instance, which is a huge part of their expenditure. And when they have tried it, you know, as Campbell Newman did in Queensland, it sort of it comes a cropper. So I, I feel, you know, I don't know you, you feel where your direction as a think tank is, but I think that we've got to take a lot more interest and focus on state government policy uh, mm. if we're going to really achieve these reforms. And also, in course, in federal-state relations, how we, can, how we can better align the raising of the money with the spending of the money give some responsibility. Uh, to yeah, and, and your example about fixing the state-based payroll tax duties, I mean, that's a classic case where the states, whether it's New South Wales or Victoria, they, they just, um, they don't want to go there. They don't, reform is a dirty word in these, in these states. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's not a, this isn't a partisan thing, by the way. No, I know. Because when you look at it, you know, I mean, I think the growth in public sector spending um, in Western Australia, for instance, under the Barnett government, which was a very good government in many ways, but it was, you know, it was, it was huge. I know they had a they had a mining boom and they had to cope with that in terms of wages. But you know, it, it really is. It hasn't. It's there's not a lot of difference between Labor and Liberals on this, which suggests to me it's something about the, the structural nature of state governments that that doesn't encourage them to pull back on payroll in particular. But, um, we've had this initiative, Tom, I wonder what you think about this, the National Cabinet, which has worked very well by all accounts in handling this COVID-19 crisis. I've been two minds about this as a, as a body going forward. On the one hand, it seems to be 
infinitely more effective than um, COAG, you know, which is very bureaucratically dominated in terms of relations between state and federal. But I'm not sure. I, I, I wonder whether it's going to work in the long term or whether it's going to be a distraction. I don't, have you had any thoughts on that one? Well, um, sometimes crises have an amazing tendency to unite um, political opponents, but um, I think there's a sort of, um, I, was, I was talking to Max Hastings, the distinguished British historian on my ABC Radio National Program a few weeks ago. And I asked him if he saw any analogies between the wartime World War II spirit, uh, particularly in Britain, and today's unity on fighting um, the coronavirus. And um, he just reminded our listeners that there's a lot of mythology about the national cabinets, united cabinets, in wartime, there was a lot of disunity in Britain and indeed in Australia during the um, early to mid-1940s about the war. And uh, it's only natural that those differences will rise to the surface during heated debates. I think the real test will come not now, but in six to 12 months' time. See, what if things return to normal, Nick, and, um, and uh, the economy is, you know, the lockdown comes to an end and the economy starts to resume growth. Uh, but then the coronavirus returns in a year's time. This is exactly, by the way, what happened in 1918, 1919, when the pandemic, the Spanish uh, influenza returns. Can the Western economies, can the national cabinets in these economies go through this process again and you suspend economic reality and you just print more money? And um, I, I, money you don't have, by the way. So I can see a time where these national cabinets will, will, will actually um, break up um, and um, unity will not be found. So uh, that, I'm not saying this is going to happen, can't predict the future, but it's conceivable that other challenges will arise that threaten that unity of those so-called national cabinets. Yeah, and it's guesswork, right? I mean, no, nobody knows. No one knows. It's so uncertain. Yeah. No, but... but Certainly, if you look at historical precedent, you know, the 1930s, the depression of the 1930s, uh, you know, there was huge spending uh, in the United States, of course, mm. the old New Deal. Now they're talking about a Green New Deal, but that was the old <laughs> New Deal. And, um, you know, it's very, very uh, questionable how much that shifted the dial in America. It was really only World War II that really brought America out of that period. So... I sort of share your concern. There's different. Look, having said that, there's a lot. There's a lot that's different now. I think we have more flexible economies. Largely, they could. They should be a lot more flexible. But we don't have, for instance, you know, heavy industry, uh, great industrial towns as as America and other countries did then, which were just hit completely. And and you know, what I'll give you an example, Tom. You can't see because we're doing this socially distant. But I'm I'm talking into a microphone now. Um, and it's everybody says it's a, the great state-of-the-art microphone for podcasts, and it's made by Rode in Australia. So this is an wow. Australian company that's that's in this area of technology. It's hard to buy them right now because everybody's going into podcasting. But yeah, I just looked at this thing, and it's 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 beautiful, and it's one hundred and forty-nine dollars or whatever it is. And think what well, Australians have the ability to be very flexible and innovative and to find gaps in the market for these new products. Uh, so I think that's what's different now. And that's what gives me hope that it, we could get out of this 
quicker rather than later. But it's, it's crucial that all our reforms focus on making the economy more flexible, not less. You know, getting rid of these uh, many industrial awards that just yeah. make it hard to do business, red tape, as you say. Yeah. We've got to look to agility, I think, don't you? Yeah, I think, I think the other point, to be, well, I certainly agree with that, but I think the other point to bear in mind, um, this is what Charles Moore, the, the former editor of The Telegraph and The Spectator, told me recently, we should take solace in America, Britain and Australia that the governments in these countries, at this stage at least, are broadly centre-right governments. So they'll be less likely to use this crisis as a way of increasing the size of government and the burden on taxpayers once we pass this crisis. Whereas, just imagine if Jeremy Corbyn was, was, in, was living in number 10, or if Bernie Sanders was in the White House, or Bill Shorten was in the lodge, um, they'd be more likely to use this crisis as a way of increasing the size of government, perhaps even embracing socialism. So that's why we should probably take some solace in knowing that we're unlikely to go down that road to socialism. However, if um, circumstances change and uh, the government's not getting the right advice, um, that may help. They may happen via stealth. That segues nicely into the United Kingdom, the United States, you, you follow, I know, politics and, um, and events in both those countries very closely. The UK, first of all, this, this is, you know, poor old Boris, Boris Johnson, he came out of an election. He already had a hard job on his hands uh, in, you know, getting Brexit through, and now they're hit by this. I, it seems to me that their problems are, are huge and uh, in, in Britain, and... Um, it's a very hard task he's got, but he seems to be at this stage, I would say, at least, you know, in, in charge of events and he has some support. What's your, what's your reading of it? Well, to our Britain, um, a leading British left liberal columnist, uh, Jonathan Friedland, who writes a regular column in the Guardian newspaper. I'm sure you've read him in the past, Nick. He had a lovely in quote the in the past. Well, look, I still, I, it's still important to read what our critics are saying, but yeah, indeed. <laughs> I often say this at CIS, only when you know your, your critics' strongest arguments do you know your own weaknesses. But he had a quirky line, which I think was true. He said, just as um, there are no atheists on a sinking ship, uh, there are no free marketeers during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and his point was that even Boris Johnson, um, a disciple of Margaret Thatcher, who for years wrote columns in The Spectator and The Telegraph, this is what he was arguing, uh, championing uh, the Thatcher uh, free market agenda. Um, even Boris has embraced big government. And, uh, and I think that the first duty of government in a crisis is to protect your people. So he's been cut some slack there. But the test will come uh, once this crisis is over. And that's why it's the, the right thing, when you say this about Australia, it's the right thing for responsible governments uh, to do everything to ensure uh, a true return to normal and, um, you know, manage expectations as sensibly as possible because you, you not only want to restore the highest level of personal liberty after this shutdown, which, face it, has, has included draconian measures, you also want to ensure the general prosperity and freedom um, continue uh, and that it's not something that future historians will look back and say uh, this was an aberration of the last few decades. We want to continue that. And the best way of doing that is by uh, uh, doing everything you can to ensure a true return to normal. And that's my sense of how Boris will play things in Britain 
and Morrison will play things out in Australia. In the United States, of course, it's a lot different because we've got a federal national election taking place in November and it's not clear who will win that election. And Trump may well lose that and we're just not sure what a Biden Democrat administration will mean. Yeah, look, this is a hard one, isn't it? I mean, you'd have to say, I think even even Trump's greatest fans, I think, would acknowledge that he he kind of missed the pulse a bit, missed the beat on on Coronas until it was out of control there. Um, yeah, putting aside his tweets and all that, which I don't pay too much attention to, but in terms of public policy. But look, yeah. there's two, there's two well, things. Bear, bear, bear in mind, though, that to be fair to Trump, a lot of this is driven by the states because America has a decentralised system. And I carry no brief for Trump. I'll be very clear about this. But remember, in late January, he did um, put an executive uh, ban, if you like, on flights to and fro China and as a way of stemming the virus. And at the time, many Democrats labelled him as xenophobic and, and racist. So they can't say that he wasn't prepared for the crisis when at the time they criticised him for trying to put in place policies to stop the virus. Yeah, well, that's right. And the one thing that, the course, of Trump administration does get about this is the role of China in this um, and, and the quite nefarious uh, role of China in terms of not just the outbreak, but where it came from and the information that they gave the outside world. So he gets that, all right, and um, we understand that. And you're right, I was going to raise the point about the states. It's a very much more, um, a, a less of a federation in the sense, mm. in that sense that states make um, decisions about about health and public health mm. and those sort of things much more directly. But uh, the other thing, though, Tom, is, and I'm intrigued watching these demonstrations this week, people getting out, mm. protesting against the, the, the lockdown in America. That's not happening here, right? So I sense that he's, there is a lot more um, public anxiety about the mm. shutdown of the economy there it seems to me and he's probably on the right tack there what do you think uh, i've read polling that shows there's still a minority view to oppose the shutdown um i think you've got to remember there is more anxiety about this than there is here there's been a lot of economic costs a lot of emotional toll but americans by and large have um have heeded the 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 orders from both federal and state governments and you know, they're obviously practising social distancing. Um, hospitals are not overwhelmed like they were in, say, Italy. But uh, I think you can say this about Australia and Britain over time. The public's patience won't last forever, Nick. And um, I think it's most likely to fray when uh, this continues for a long period of time and, and you've got police officials imposing pretty tough restrictions that defy common sense. And we've had that in Australia already. You've heard the stories that have been publicised. Guy eating a kebab at a park park bench and gets fined a thousand bucks. I mean, that's that's just madness. Well, um, I, I, hope, I hope those are the first things that, that are lifted once we get out of this. Well, it's not fair right. on police, right? The police shouldn't be put in those positions. Well, that's no. right. They're just following the orders, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, it was a horrible one overnight about police breaking up a funeral in Canberra. You know, this is just ridiculous. Jeez. I mean, it just, mm. anyway, I, I, what I sense in, in uh, interest in your thoughts on this, that Australia still has a very strong uh, civic society, a good mm. structure here that people voluntarily, um, in many cases, complying with the regulations uh, and, and it's coming from the bottom up. We don't really need this top down policing. I think we've, 
most of the time, most Australians do the right thing, it seems to me. Yeah, um, and we haven't seen the, the kind of scenes in Michigan, in, in, North, in the US Midwest, where you've had thousands gathered in the state capitol in the last week or so, protesting the, the sweeping restrictions issued by the state premier, the state governor. Um, um, so I, I think uh, we're, we're, but nevertheless, I just think that there will come a point where people can only do this for so long, particularly when it comes to schooling. I mean, um, not allowing your kids to go to school for another month, I think that's going to put a huge burden on a lot of families, particularly those families who live in apartments or flats. I mean, that people have pointed this out, haven't they? The people who make these decisions uh, are often the ones who live in the you know, nicer, more spacious <laughs> no. apartments. So <laughs> That's exactly right. There's a real divide there, isn't there? There is, there is. Um, finally, Tom, look, we will resume this conversation, I'm sure. And in fact, next time we might bring John Roscom into it. But uh, Great. Um, in terms of the, you know, you, give, give us your wish. You, if you could have... If you could use this crisis to fix one particular part of public policy, uh, what would it be? I'll tell you mine first. Mine would be the ABC. I think this is the point at which we say to the ABC, look, sorry, chaps. You know, the mm. art sector is really doing it hard right now. Uh, you know, the, the, we've got the world-class opera, world-class ballet, world-class symphony orchestras, mm. world-class theatre, and they're not able to perform to an audience. What about you pick that up and run with it? And what about uh, you know you might you might have to ditch um, you might have to ditch Q and A or you might have to ditch News Twenty Four, but this you'll be doing the country a great service. I'd like to see that happen, and 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 I think the government actually you're, you work for the ABC, of course. What's your take on it? Well, I argue for the privatisation of the public broadcaster many years ago in a book that was published by Gary Johns um, on the real dangerous ideas and this was in response to those left-wing festival of dangerous ideas these were the really dangerous ideas and my dangerous ideas a 5,000 word chapter that I think uh, was reprinted in quadrant magazines so I've long supported the privatization of the ABC I don't I don't see the role of the public broadcaster I enjoy my role enjoy my colleagues but I think to the extent that there should be a public broadcaster it should be focused primarily on just news and current affairs uh, not not the arts not the not not FM music um, and and, and uh, not shows where there's a lot of opinion. Just give the straight facts. Like news radio, I think, is actually a, a national treasure because it just presents the news in a fairly fair and balanced way. Unfortunately, the same can't be said for a lot of other ABC programs. Mm. And, the, and the treatment of the Cardinal Pearl case was a classic case in point. That was clearly a witch hunt. But look, in terms of answering your question, I'd say a big bang policy reform agenda that includes the things we discussed before, lower taxes, less regulation, um, reduce adversarial workplace regulation, um, teach children basic skills essential for high learning. I mean, that's so important. So much gobbledygook in, in schools, and it's not just in New South Wales, it's all across the country. Um, so I, I'd say a big bang economic reform agenda that's analogous to uh, the kind of reform agenda that Hawke and Keating put in place in the mid-1980s. That would be my wish out of this crisis. Yeah, not a serious level, of course. Amen to that. Tom, look, thank you. Thank you also for what you, the work you've done at the CIS, how well you've, uh, you've stepped into those great shoes left by Greg Lindsay and, and <laughs> your own flavour to it. it. It's terrific what you're doing. I, I know, being in the think tank game myself, how hard it is sometimes. So thank you very much. And, well, and thank we'll, you, Nick. 
we look forward to working with you on some of the to get this policy agenda up and running. And the great thing about groups like CIS and the IPA and, and of course, Menzies Research Centre is that uh, we have great supporters and there's a lot of overlap with those supporters. So we're very grateful for those supporters because it's because of those supporters we survive and thrive and try to put in place good, pub, good public right. policy. Yeah. Thanks so Thanks. much, Nick. Thanks, Tom. If you'd like to hear more free content like this, then please consider helping us by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre at www.menziesrc.org.